Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. They're not going to give you their honey hole, <laughs> you know. To me, the essence of upland bird hunting is a long, hard walk through tough cover. You're going to have to drive to an area that you think holds promise. Anyway, and then we've, we've gotten out and walked sometimes for a couple days. The, the satisfaction comes through a long, hard pursuit, finding them on your own and watching your dogs get it done. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying I couldn't have missed that bird. All right, everybody, welcome back to another week of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. Our guest this week is Jim Sorensen. Jim, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. So, Jim, let's go ahead and start off with the obvious. Kind of tell everybody where you're calling from and uh, what kind of dogs you run. Okay, well, I'm calling from Ames, Iowa. I've uh, lived here all my life. And uh, my dogs are German short-haired pointers. Currently have two of them. Yeah, that's pretty much the, uh, the the dogs that I've had over the years. Gotcha. I've had, uh, yeah, I've had a, a, a Visla was the first dog, and then I've had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six short hairs, I guess, since. All right. So what made you go with the Vishla for the first dog? Well, I was 21 years old at the time, and um, it was really the first pointing dog that I'd ever had, and it was, you know, I, I'm 65 now. I'm trying to think back actually what, <laughs> what inspired me to do that. I, it was just kind of a spur of the moment thing. I think I saw an ad, you know, for pups and I read a little bit about them and, you know, they were kind of unique and a Hungarian hunting dog. And, and so I, yeah, I purchased one and that started the whole pointing dog thing. Mm. And one was enough to send you to the German side of things, huh? <laughs> well, uh, you know, when I was 21, you know, when you're in your, your, 20s you're chasing girls more than birds so yeah, yeah. i i quite frankly i never hunted that dog enough to really give it a good chance uh -oh. i mean it i i would get out and hunt 
a few times a year. Uh, but you know, I was working full time then too. And, and, uh, yeah, so that dog probably really didn't have the, the most robust hunting career. Yeah. And then, so GSPs, I mean, so when you, you got the Vishla, maybe you didn't do fair by it, you know, it is what it is. You're in your twenties. What, uh, what struck your fancy about the short hairs? Was it immediately after, or was there a gap at all? No, it was, um, it was immediately after. And it, uh, well, I knew a, a guy, there was a friend of mine that, uh, ran short hairs and he had a litter of pups and it was probably more, more a matter of timing actually at that time, uh, is the reason I, I got into that dog. And, and then I had, uh, a good friend that also had a, a German short hair and I always admired his, I just loved the, the coloration and, and everything about his dog. Um, mine was a, uh, pretty much a liver and liver and tick, but mostly liver. It was a very dark dog and his was the white and liver. And, uh, that is what I really loved. So, uh, yeah, that, that kind of started me on short hairs and, uh, and then, uh, I, I purchased a dog, uh, from my buddy's, uh, supplier and got a dog that looked pretty much like his. And, uh, that was Bo. That was the first short hair or second short hair that I'd had. And he truly was, um, the best dog I'd had in my life up to that point. So we bred him twice and, and got pups from him. And, you know, that, we've stayed with that lineage ever since. Gotcha. And so, yeah, you, you got in the German short hair game and then you, you never left it. Uh, kind of give me a brief overview on what, what all you've done with dogs. I mean, we obviously, you're here to talk hunting, you know, we're going to talk the Upland Slam and you're all your crazy adventures, but have you done any trialing, testing, uh, any interest in that whatsoever? You know, not, not really. Uh, you know, the, the Vishla, we, we trialed that dog, um, just early on a few times and, and it, it did all right. It finished second in, in, in a few competitions and, uh, but that just didn't interest me. And, and I respect guys to do that. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a, it's a great pursuit, but really I'm just all about hunting birds, you know, out in the wild, fair game chase. And, um, you know, that's, that's my passion. That's what you're after. And being in Iowa, you're not in a bad spot for that. So I got to ask, like, what, what's your favorite local bird to, to hunt there in Iowa? Well, in Iowa, it's all about pheasants. Yeah. Uh, we've got, we've got uh, Bob Whites in southern Iowa and just a handful of Huns, you know, in the northern part of the state. But it's, it's always been about pheasants, really, in Iowa. And, and there was a time when Iowa was the number one pheasant uh state you know in the country ahead of south dakota yeah but uh you know farming practices and and uh just lack of cover because of that has you know made an impact uh, negative impact obviously yeah unfortunately it seems like that's kind of an echo across the country for uh for a lot of species and habitat um, it's really interesting, you know, but before these episodes, I, j- I just did two episodes with, uh, our mutual friend, Keith Marcotte, who put me in connection with you. And he, he said a few things that got, got a little bit of feedback on the episode talking about how, uh, you know, 
uh, pheasant is probably his least favorite bird to hunt, especially with pointing dogs. So, you know, it, th- that's kind of been a common uh, conversation in my life for the past week or so. So uh, what's your take on hunting pheasants with pointing dogs versus flushing dogs? Did you like? I'm assuming there being in Iowa, you've had a chance to kind of do both a little bit. You bet. Yeah, we've done both. Um, but I still just love pointing dogs. And uh, to me, I- I'll never... I mean, I love labs and, and well, I love all dogs really, but, uh, I'm all about pointing dogs and, and, you know, I've been hunting pheasants for, oh, well over 50 years. And, um, and I've probably averaged 20 birds a year. So I, I'm probably, I probably shot a thousand pheasants in my life, <laughs> you know? So it's, uh. And, and, you know, quite honestly, I still get a real charge, uh, a tremendous thrill out of everyone that leaves the ground. You know, they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they get a lot of the ditch parrot thing and, you know, <laughs> a lot of, a, a lot of negative comments, but uh, a good pointing dog can master pheasants and handle the fact that they run and, you know, they put some dogs through the paces, you know, but, uh, my dogs have learned the game that they play and, you know, when necessary, they'll creep and point and creep and point and eventually they'll work them into a corner where they, they can't run any further. And, and then we lock them down and, and we get them. Yeah. And, and I think what you're describing is really with pheasants, it's the name of the game. I mean, I know, you know, we, we beat up on them a little bit during that episode, but Keith even said in that episode, you know, if, if, if your pointing dog gets enough reps on them, they can get good at it. But just naturally, I think the, the flushing dogs just have a natural, uh, edge on pheasants compared to pointing dogs. In my opinion, I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Well, yeah, it's, um, Boy, that that'd be a hard one for me to. <laughs> to <laughs> quite frankly, I uh, I've seen both work, and and you know, uh, a good flusher is is certainly money in the field on pheasants. There's no question about that. But there are very few pheasants that uh, my dogs have not been able to pin down. Yeah. I mean, that's we we shoot all the pheasants over points, and um, and we don't have really any big problem in getting them pointed and locked down. Uh, but you know, dogs get good at what they hunt frequently. Yeah. You know, um, I've seen dogs that are masterful at desert quail, but can't hunt anything else, yep. you know, and, and I've seen field trial dogs that, you know, are the best in the world at doing what they do, but they can't go out to Montana and, lockdown hunts so it's you know it's every dog kind of gets used to what they hunt and and they master that i think that's the thing that i really have loved about short hairs is just their their versatility and their durability but their their versatility to you know um, figure out how to approach and how to hunt all of the upland birds that are out there and 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 do a good job on all of them well, you just gave me a softball segue there because ultimately that's what we're here to talk about. Not short hairs specifically, but, you know, we're going to talk a lot of short hairs because that's what you run. 
but the word is versatility. And I know that word kind of gets thrown around a lot, uh, you know, it, in terms of whether are we talking about the NAVDA definition or the VHDF definition to where it's, you know, it's fur, wa- waterfowl and dry birds. But I'm just talking about versatility in the game and the birds that we chase. And that's something that you have a unique perspective about that I'm excited to to really dive deep on is you've taken your dogs across the country and your goal, your goal was to hit the upland slam per dog, not even per handler, but per dog. Uh, is it? Am I describing that correctly so far? Yes, you are. So elaborate. Tell me a little bit. Like you know, everybody has a different definition of the quote unquote upland slam. Define what your upland slam was, and where did the idea kind of come from? What made you want to go after this? Okay. Well, for Geez, until about the year 2000, um, all I hunted was pheasants 10 miles from my home here in Iowa. And uh, in 2000, I think it was the first year I ever bought an uh, out-of-state license. A buddy of mine and I went to Kansas. We hunted Bob Whites. And in 2003, I went to South Dakota with a buddy, and we hunted pheasants. And then... You know, went up to Minnesota and met a friend, and we hunted rough grouse and woodcock. And pretty soon it was Oklahoma and blue quail and uh, Saskatchewan and Huns and Sharpies. And so, you know, I was I was just crazy about shooting all of these birds and pursuing them all. It was uh, it was fascinating to me. And I I, I remember I bought. Uh, Tom Hugler's book and Ben Williams' book on quail hunting. They both had written books, and I read those. And so in 2009, I did a quail slam, um, you know, where went through Oklahoma and Arizona and California and, and got the Bob Whites and, and the, the scaled quail and the Merns and the Gambles and the Valley and Mountain. and you know, that was one of the most exciting things I'd done. And, and then in, what really started this whole thing was an article I read in Pointing Dog Journal uh, written by Tom Davis, and it was called My Bucket List. And I read that uh, in 2010. And what a, he was talking about, uh, he had a young setter, and he was talking about some of the birds that he would like to get during her lifetime. And, and then while he was talking about that, he kind of alluded to this 20-bird North American Upland Grand Slam. And, yeah, I, that was new to me. I didn't even know something like that existed. But there were three guys uh, at that time that had accomplished that feat. and you know, I was just fascinated by it. And one of the guys, uh, Joe Augustine, guy from New York City, uh, had, uh, Tom was, in his article, was talking about Joe, and he said he'd had a heck of a time getting this mountain quail. Uh, It was just a a grinding battle of, of six days of trying to get a point and then a shot and, you know, and how difficult it was. And I was thinking, geez, 
I've, I've shot a few of those, you know, <laughs> over my dog's point. And I was thinking, man, you know, you could do this. So that's where it, I guess, where it got started. And Joe had written a book about it. And I read the book in the winter of 2010. And it was just like I had a full blown, blown disease at that point. I mean, <laughs> it was it was something it I had away. to pursue. <laughs> yeah, no, it was not going away. And and so I decided that, uh, uh, yeah, I I had two young dogs, and I was 53 at the time, and I I I liked my odds, you know. So um, that's when I decided to give it a go. All right, so twenty birds. Uh, that that's the list that you stuck with. Kind of get. I don't know. Do you have the list right there in front of you, or can you just regurgitate it like right off the top of your head? <laughs> since it's been an obsession for so I, long, I, I can I can kind of regurgitate it because I've had so many guys ask me through the years. You know what what birds? <laughs> and it, it was it was the list. I went with the same list that Charlie Waterman uh, had had done it. Uh, he was an outdoor writer who's deceased. Ben Williams had done it, and uh, and then Joe Augustine had done it. And the lo- the list they used were there's six quail, and that's the Bob White, Scaled, Gambles and Merns, Valley and Mountain. Then there's five grouse, which would be the Blue, the Sage, the Sharp-tailed. Ruffed and spruce. And then there's three ptarmigan, which is the willow, the rock, and the white tailed. Then there's two prairie chickens, greater and lesser, two partridge, tuckers, and huns. Then the American woodcock and the ring neck pheasant. That should total up to 20. Yep. All right. So, and then you don't count. The uh, the Himalayan snowcock in this, and I, it's crazy. I, I've had a few people message me because I've said this on re- the recent episodes with Keith, but some people consider uh, the turkey as an upland bird. I personally don't. It doesn't sound like you do either, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's, you know, there are a lot of, I don't know, I call them fringe birds, but birds that you don't typically hunt with a, a pointing dog. Um, you know, a Himalayan snowcock, man, those birds are so unforgiving. They would, I, I don't know if anybody has ever managed to have a, a dog point one of those, you know, and, and they're let alone, let alone kill one. I mean, they're, they're just impossible to get anyway. And, and so, no, I, 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 I like the, the list of 20 that we have because typically you hunt those in cover that you normally think of in upland hunting. And yeah, you know, that's, that's why I kind of like to, I, I will say the lesser prairie chicken obviously is no longer in that list because it's, it's, uh, it's federally protected. Now it's, it's on the, on the list. So it can no longer be hunted. Um, and I've, I've got, uh, I've got another short hair that has 16 out of the 20, um, harvested right now that I want to 
complete the list with her and I need to figure out what the number 20 bird's going to be <laughs> because it, you know, that, that lesser is out of the list now. So we have 19 and so I might have to call up Tom Davis and see what he thinks we ought to put in there for the, <laughs> the, 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 the filler. Yeah. The snowcock, you know, here we come. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, I've heard, you know, there's, uh, there's Colombian, um, uh, Shark tails, you know. There's uh, there's snipe. There's uh, golly. There's there's a handful of birds that could probably qualify there. That I was I was just about to say where where is the snipe and the rail? Do we not consider them? I know rail. Uh, uh, I, Jim, my buddy Jim, that we did the uh, episode with on on rail and and snipe forever ago in North Carolina. He he just recently did a post and it reminded me that rail is manage as a waterfowl species uh and you know but it's really kind of an upland bird you know couldn't you just take one of those uh the, like a king rail or a clapper rail or something and just put that in for your 20 but then you're going to want to go after all the other rail species too <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah it's uh yeah it's going to be kind of a hard decision to figure out what number 20 is going to be uh but um uh, yeah, I'm, I think I'm actually, you know, Tom Davis, I, I keep going back to him, but uh, he's the guy that initially got me interested in this with his article. And, and I've hunted with Tom a couple times since I've got to know him. Um, and I really respect his uh, uh, his writing ability. And, and he's just a great guy, you know, and and he he, he just knows everybody. And so, yeah, I'm going to reach out to Tom and just say, I need a little suggestion here, some guidance on that that bird. Yeah, what number twenty needs to be. So I need I need more context. Obviously, we got a lot of ground to cover here because you've you've covered a lot of ground. I mean, point blank. You know, you started off with a you know Bob White hunt out of state, and then you go for the quail slam, and then here we are. So I want to get to know you know what's your 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 thought process what's what's the next step you you kind of get uh infected as you put it <laughs> disease wise with this with this thought and chasing the upland slam okay tell me your next steps because like you said you've primarily only hunted pheasant your entire life you know there there's a big learning curve every time you step out of the box and chase a new species so like uh Tell me, like, where your mind is going to. Are you hitting the books? Are you researching different species? Or are you just kind of tackling it as it comes? Well, um, so, you know, hunting has been a hobby of mine since, well, I was, you know, five years old. So um, so I, I subscribe to a lot of publications. I, you know, pointing, I always got Pointing Dog Journal, Shooting Sportsman, used to get Gun Dog, uh, Gray's. Um, and then a member of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, so I get their publications, member of the Rough Grouse Society, so I got their publication. Um, so I, I, you know, I literally was flooded with <laughs> too, too many things to read, honestly, yeah. but, uh, there's a lot of really good articles in all of those about all of those birds, you know, and, uh, so you you would just get little pieces of information, you know, pretty much here and there. And, um, you know, when I, 
when we would go out of state and go to a new state to hunt, typically I would, you know, reach out to their DNR or their fish and game department. Uh, I'd find a phone number and I would try to talk to a human being. And uh, a lot of those guys are hunters as well. And, uh, and typically they'll have wildlife biologists, you know, on staff as well. And boy, you can get a ton of really good information in a very short time from, from those guys. And, you know, when you think of driving to Montana for the first time to hunt, <laughs> it's a little intimidating, Yeah, you know, it's a big state and even their counties are big. So, you know, where do you ever begin? And, uh, in pretty much where I began was talking to somebody and they could narrow down the scope uh, dramatically. And then they could talk all kinds of things, you know, how to hunt these birds, what altitude, you know, to look for these birds, um, what County that they would go to if it was me, uh, that kind of thing. And, uh, so I'd just like to and, point you know, out there, I would just like to point out there that you're getting these resources on the phone and you ask like perhaps a region, a county to go to. You did not ask like a property. You did not ask for a pen. You asked for, you know, what's the area for me to go to? And then tell me like more information about the bird so I can piece it together myself. You're not asking anybody to like, hey, put me on a bird right here. Oh, yeah. You know they're not going to give you their honey hole, <laughs> you know, nope. I mean, nobody's going to, going to do that. And, and I, w- I wouldn't want somebody to make it easy anyway. You know, to me, the essence of upland bird hunting is a long, hard walk through tough cover. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great tools out there. You know, now we've got Onyx and there's Google Earth and, and those are great tools to help scout. Uh, but at the end of the day, all they can do is suggest possibilities. Uh, you're, you're going to have to drive to an area that you think holds promise. And, you know, and then we've, we've gotten out and walked sometimes for a couple days before we would find the bird that we were looking for. So it's, it's, it's not, I, I don't think people would really, most guys wouldn't want it to be, you know, handed to them. The, the satisfaction comes uh, through a long, hard pursuit, finding them on your own and watching your dogs get it done. Yeah. And you're going to be better off for it the next time you're planning a trip. You know, every lesson that you learn on this one is the next trip's uh, fortunes, right? You know, your experience and knowledge that you gain this year is going to be paid off next year. May, it may not be immediate payoff, but I just, I, I wanted to bring that to light because that is part of the fun. That is part of the learning curve. And, and another thing that kind of struck out to me, or stuck out to me was you saying that you already had a lot of the information, you know, between the magazines and the articles and the books and everything. You've already over years been kind of accumulating some of the knowledge that you needed for a trip like this. You didn't just say, hey, I'm going to go take a trip and then bite off, you know, a huge chunk to where you're stuck in a library trying to cram it all in your head. You know, this comes from years of 
of passionate learning and, and being open to reading and, and other sources and stuff like that to where the learning never stopped for you. You know, it just kind of prepared you for this adventure that hadn't come up until now. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, I, I think back of a, a trip I took to Kansas while I was on the, the quest to do the, the 20 birds and I just called it my wildcat trip. I just, um, I, literally, I, well, I, I made a few phone calls ahead of time. I talked to uh, some really helpful guys there in their DNR department, fish and game department. And, uh, and Kansas, most of these states have excellent maps that they'll supply. And Kansas has a really good walk-in hunting program. And they've got a booklet that they publish every year, a brochure, uh, basically with every county in it. And it's, and then, you know, there's dots all over that county that uh, is public land or walk-in hunting. And I can remember just taking off and I wasn't even sure what city I was going to stay in um, or where I was going to be hunting for sure. But I, I drove to the area where I wanted to start and, um, and man, everything clicked, you know, we, I, I stayed in Manhattan and we went south and, and, um, hunted for Bob Whites and man, we got into them, you know, just on public ground. In fact, shot a limit a couple times there. And that was when we went after the lesser prairie chicken. And I remember the fellow I talked to, he said, you know, if it was me, I'd go to Ness County. And Ness County was clear out in west central Kansas. So we drove to Ness City, and they don't even have motels there. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a little place. So I went into a bar and was talking to a guy, and he goes, oh, there's, there's a friend of mine that rents his house. And I ended up staying, um, in this house that this guy would, would rent out. And we went out, I mean, we, I said, uh, my two dogs and I went out hunting lesser prairie chickens and, um, first field we went into, they got birds pointed and we shot lesser prairie chickens. And, uh, <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, it was not all that much planning, but I knew where I wanted to start. And I knew the kind of cover I was looking for. And, and I tell you, the dogs, they do the heavy lifting. I mean, if you put them in the area and the dogs are quality dogs, they find them, you know, and you just do the walking and let the dogs carry the heavy end. Absolutely. And let's let's talk about the dogs for a second, because you got this crazy idea. You said that there were two short hairs at the time of, the, of this idea. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Um, Abby and Ace were the dogs that I did this with. And, um, Abby was three years old. Ace was one year old. And so when I started this, um, well, literally I started the first hunt with Ace was a year or one day after his first birthday. So he had really not been on any wild birds yet to speak of. And Abby had already notched a bunch of birds. I mean, she'd She'd probably harvested half a dozen different species, but I wanted to start with zero and zero. 
so um, we 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 cleaned the slate, and I started both dogs at zero at that point. And you know the the essence really of of this to me was the dog has to provide a solid point, and then I have to hit the bird on the fly. And so if if uh, if the dog would point and I'd miss, it wouldn't count. Or if it was uh, a wild flush, not pointed, and I shot the bird, that didn't count. So it was all really about teamwork between, you know, man and, and dog, uh, again, with the dog carrying the heavy end. Yeah, so expand on that a little bit more. You know, why why was it so important that it was over a point? Because, you know, a lot of people that – that's another, you know, the upland world and dog world. We're not short on debates here between people. You know, some people think that shooting bump birds doesn't matter. Some people, you know, it, like like me, myself, if my dog bumps it, I don't shoot it. Uh, you didn't say that you won't shoot it. You're just saying that it didn't count for the slam. So, like, where was it? Like, give me your line of thinking on, on that topic. Well, I guess to me, 80% of the the joy of hunting is, with a dog and for me to watch a dog on point is one of the most exciting things <laughs> on earth. I mean, I just love every second of watching dogs work and those, those few seconds before a flush when a dog is on point are just some of the best seconds in life for me. And yeah, I, when I'm out just meat hunting or hunting with the guys, we shoot birds that, uh, that flush wild, you know, but this was, I, I wanted it to be more of a pure accomplishment. And to me, it, it meant a whole lot more. It was a, a lot more of a challenge, I guess, to make that dog lock that bird down. And, you know, and, and if it was a flash point, even if it was a point and I shot it, I count. still insisted on, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't count it. Uh, okay. I, it had to be, I, it, I wanted a solid point, a validation point, you know, one that I could remember the rest of my life and be proud of. And, uh, you know, I, and, and I think that, well, I'm, I'm sure that Joe Augustine operated the same way. You know, uh, it was all about the point and then the harvest. And, um, and I guess maybe that got it in my head in the first place. I don't know for sure if Ben Williams and Charlie Waterman did it that way, but I would assume that they did because those guys were all about pointing dogs. Yeah. And at the end of the day, this is Jim Sorensen's trip. You know, it doesn't matter how anybody else did it. It's just how I, I was just wanting to get in your head of like, why, why set that standard? And was there any standard in regards to retrieving or was, was it just the point was the, the main standard that you wanted to hit with your dog? It, it was just the point. Um, you know, both of those dogs were force broke for, um, for retrieve. And they were totally different. You know, Ace retrieved because he loved to retrieve. And Abby retrieved because she had to retrieve. (laughs) There's a difference, you know. But uh, so all of these birds were retrieved. uh, But that was not what I was really concerned about. Uh, It it was, 
it was before the flush is what I was concerned about. And, um, and that's the part that I'm just enamored with is, and I love watching a good retreat. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's, uh, that's money uh, it, to, to knock a bird down and not find it and not have it brought back to you. That's, that's a ha- hollow feeling. You know, I don't like that at all. Um, but to me, just the art of watching a dog just work a bird, you can see their body language and you can, you can see it shaping up or sometimes it's just wham, you know, the cone hits them and, and it's just instantaneous. But regardless, um, it, it, to me, it's a work of art. And, uh, and that was, that was very important to me. I, I, I had to have a, a solid point that, like I say, I could remember and be proud of. Yeah. And, and going back to the dogs. So, I mean, obviously Ace is young. He's, a, he just turned one. You just talked about it. You know, he, he's still a puppy at one, uh, Abby at three, while she has some experience and, you know, if someone can argue like three and four, probably, I mean, that's, that's prime time season for a lot of dogs. Uh, it's still a relatively young dog. And while you said that she knocked off a, a half a dozen species, you're restarting from zero. Kind of walk me through your, your headset. Like how much confidence are you going into the season with a brand new puppy and one that's just a couple seasons under her belt? Well, I was feeling pretty confident, uh, because I hunt a lot. Um, and, and I actually, at that point I had retired from my first job. I kind of, I, I, I sold auto parts for 32 years and, and I was a landlord, uh, uh, at the same time. So I kind of had two careers, but I was able to retire from the auto parts job at 50. So it gave me a lot of opportunity to hunt and uh, I had a lot of flexibility with the landlord thing, just, you know, because you don't have to be there all the time. Yeah. So in, in the fall, um, I, I hunted pretty hard. And so Abby had had a lot of miles on her already and I knew what she could do. And there was little doubt in my mind that, you know, she could mow through them and, and their sire, their papa dog, Bo, uh, even though I, I'd never pursued the quest with him, uh, in his lifetime, he had 12 birds, uh, different species. So I was confident that, you know, she certainly had it in her to do it, Abby and, and Ace, well, it was a little unknown being as young as he was, but, um, you know, what makes a good dog is time in the field. Right. And, um, you know, Ben Williams, uh, he always said that in his mind, 95% of a dog's skill is, is learned in the field and maybe 5% in training, you know, just 95% of it is, is their, their genes and then just time in the field, man. I, I, again, you're 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 just steering the ship for me here because while you're talking about this, I I got this crazy question in my head. Was I was going to ask you what's what's more important in your opinion on the preparation of the hunt? Because we're still talking about amping up and getting prepared. What what would you say? Just your personal opinion. What's more important, 
the handler and the owner preparation and figuring out where to go and studying these birds or the dog preparation and having them at a certain trained level because most people just want to concentrate on the fun stuff which is training the dog but the the homework is on our end so what what would you say is more important and the quote you gave just kind of gave me the answer <laughs> well um with both dogs i took them to a friend of mine paul phipps who's a professional trainer in southern iowa and uh, he was a buddy of mine we were both in the auto parts business at one time so i knew him from uh from years past but uh he was like i say a professional trainer and so both well, actually, Bo had been trained by Paul, and Paul had done a wonderful job with him. And so I took Ace and Abby both to Paul when they were, oh, you know, six, eight months old for, for training. And uh, and Paul is a fabulous trainer. You know, he, he would uh, teach the field manners and just introduce them to birds and instill some confidence in a young dog and it give you a little idea on, you know, what they potentially have in them. And so I, I would start certainly with that. Uh, you got to, you have to start first of all, to see if the dog really has it in them. Mm-hmm. And if, if, you, if they spend a little time with a trainer, uh, you, you figure out pretty quickly if they have it in them or if they don't. And so after they'd been with Paul, uh, it was evident that both of them, you know, had it in them. So then it was just a matter of, it was up to me to put the dogs in, in the locations where the birds were. So yeah, it, it, it's important on both ends. I mean, you know, like I say, it was teamwork, uh, dog and man, but if I could put the dogs in, in the right county or the right state, you know, the right area, uh, where the birds should be. And I was willing to walk, um, they'd find them. I'm curious, you know, why I I understand the pointing thing, but like, was it doing the slam by dog? Was that just kind of a product of opportunity to where you're going to be doing it with Abby anywhere? Anyway, might as well do it with ACE. Or was it just important to you? Like I want to do it by dog or did it turn into that over time? Well, what inspired me in, in a way to do I, with both dogs is uh, the previous three guys that had, had accomplished it had only done it over one dog. And okay. so okay. I, that, that was my challenge, I guess, was to do it over two dogs. And then timing just worked out. You know, uh, we had bred uh, Bo in 2008 and again in 2010. So... I had young dogs that were, they had a lifetime to get this accomplished. Uh, it didn't take them a lifetime, but I knew I had time, you know, and, uh, and the dogs would have, they'd be in their prime for a long time. So, uh, that's why I, uh, that it was really a challenge for me to do it with two dogs. And so I just decided to do it simultaneously with two dogs. Gotcha. And now you're on your third one. So spoiler alert, the first two, you know, <laughs> you, you go down it. Did you get it in the, in once, how many seasons did it take for you to get it with, with Ace and Abby? It essentially took three seasons. Okay. Uh, yeah, we, we, you know, they, both dogs knocked out, uh, well, 
Abby got 19 birds in three seasons and Ace got 18 birds in three seasons. And then we had to make another trip to Alaska to close the deal. Uh, both of them needed a rock ptarmigan and, uh, and Ace also needed a white-tailed ptarmigan. So in a way we saved some of the hardest ones for last, but, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it, it, so yeah, we, but I pursued it hard, you know, um, like this dog Bella that I, that has 16 out of the, the 20 now, uh, she's five and a half, but I've just basically hunted. I haven't really been nose to the grindstone or, you know, um, pursued it as aggressively with her. I do want to close the deal with her just, yeah, just for the fun of it, you know. Yeah, and she's there. You'd be able to well. say that I've done three. Yeah, yeah you know, but uh, but but yeah, if um, and I think I think there could be hundreds of guys do this. I mean, this isn't a, a, an impossible feat by any means. It, it's it really boils down to time, a little money, the desire. And in an understanding spouse, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that helps a lot. <laughs> you know, but if if you have those four four things, and the money is not, you know, it's not that much money. I mean, uh, I never kept track of what it actually costs, but uh, I think it's doable for pretty much anybody that wants to do it if they have a quality dog and they just have that burning desire, you know, in their belly that they want to do it. Yeah. I mean, traveling, you know, it is what it is. You know, I, I don't count food on my, my trips because, you know, you got to eat either way. You're eating at home or you're right. eating on the road. Like, you know, to me, that doesn't really go into the trip cost. But, you know, gas can get a little expensive, lodging, but but there's stuff that you can do to help on that. You know, whether you have a truck mate, you know, somebody tagging along to help split gas or you truck camp or something like that or only do hotels like every few nights and, you know, get cleaned up and shower and you know let's be honest a bed is 10 times better than a truck bed uh but you know there yeah. th- there are things that can kind of help you on the money front if, if you really want to do it which kind of goes into the dedication piece you were talking about or desire i should say right yeah really the, where the money was was uh gas of course um lodging and out-of-state licenses mm-hmm. and and that you know, essentially was it. I mean, you know, you've got the normal, the shells and, you know, the gear and, and stuff that, but you, you, you're going to have that anyway. Yeah. And, uh, but really it, it was, it was the fuel, the lodging and, and the out-of-state licenses. And, um, now, you know, we, I did drive to Alaska twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> and those two trips to Alaska probably cost more than the whole other 18 or 17 birds combined, you know, but, and yeah, I, I could have flown to Alaska and I have flown a dog to Alaska since, in fact, Bella, my latest dog, we flew to Alaska, uh, to get her some ptarmigan, but, um, the, the, with Abby and Ace, um, well, first of all, I'd never driven the Alaska highway, so I thought it would be fascinating. My wife went with me, which helped break up the trip and the dog chores and stuff. And, um, so it was, it was more than just a hunting trip. It was, you know, it was spectacular beauty and, and a lot, lot. But the second trip was, it's grueling. I mean, it was, <laughs> it, it, it was 65 hours one way. Oof. And it was, 
you know, that's a long it drive. Was five, oh, dude, it was five 13 hour days in a row and uh, 3,500 miles one way. So we were dedicated, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but you know, it was like I say, it was spectacular driving through Canada and, and up through Alaska and, uh, but you know, that, that was expensive there. I mean, there was, um, there was a place in Yukon territories where gasoline, well, it's sold by the liter, but I figured it out it was six seventy five a gallon. And that was back in 2013. So that was before the mess we're in now. But, uh, so in fact, it took 454 gallons round trip the first time I went to Alaska and 432 gallons the second time. All so right. you can do the math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a lot of gas, a, a lot of expense yeah. either way. Um, wow. So, I mean, is there anything missing? I mean, I know this, uh, this episode with you has really just been kind of preparing, like what made you want to go on it and getting ready and, and, and going on it. Was there anything else that like we haven't really touched on in the preparation side of it or, or the reasoning why? Boy, not that I can really think of, um, yeah, it just, uh, like I say, it, it's, it's not for everybody. Uh, and, you know, uh, you can be perfectly content to knock out a half a dozen different species in your dog's career. Or, you know, uh, there, like I said, there's no, there's no prize money awarded. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no, there's no Hall of Fame that, you know, you're going to be in. Uh, to me, it was just, it was something from within, but inspired by an article that I read and, uh, and I just thought, you know, I think I can do that. And again, I think a lot of guys could do this or girls, you know, yeah. a lot of gals can do this as well. So it's, it's, it's out there for anybody that really wants to do it, but it's, man, I'd encourage anybody to do it. It was, it's been one of the most exciting and gratifying things that I've really ever done in my life. And, um, you know, I wrote an article, um, that was published in pointing dog journal about the, the quest that I did. And, and it, it was just a lot of fun things. I met a lot of interesting people and saw a lot of spectacular scenery and, and things that you don't see if you're sitting in your living room at home. So there's a lot of fringe benefits <laughs> associated with it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me how many people I've had on this podcast that have done cool trips or cool ideas and adventures based on just a book they read or an article they read or whatever, you know, an online blog or something. It's a, you know, you never know when, when inspiration is going to strike. And, and next thing you know, you're infected with a crazy idea that you just can't get out of your brain. The disease, it sets in. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, this, this is going to wrap up part one with you. We're going to, you hold on tight. We're going to come back. We're going to knock out part two real quick, but uh, we're really going to dive in deep on the actual hunting and the, the characteristics of these birds and the trips, because uh, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a ton to unpack and unravel in this adventure. So just hold on for a second. We'll be right back. Sounds good. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed part one of my conversation with Jim Sorensen. It was really just to kind of set up the why and the the 
origination of the idea to do the Upland Slam. And, and next week, as, as you listen to that one, you'll hear a lot more of the details and specifics on how he went after each bird. And uh, we literally go bird by bird. I mean, you know, obviously we don't go into it in extreme detail, but we break down every single bird from a thousand foot elevation uh, and kind of the basics, what you're looking for, when, where, how, all that sort of thing. So uh, next week we really dive deep into this upland slam journey and, and start breaking apart the different birds and, and the how each one's unique and different from the other one. So be sure to check that out next week. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button to make sure that you haven't that you don't miss it. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, just fair warning, I'm going to I'm going to go a little longer on the housekeeping uh, this week than what we normally do. There's a lot of announcements, a lot of new things that have been happening. Uh, you've probably heard the past couple weeks or seen on the uh, podcast banner that we have a new title sponsor for the podcast, which is Standing Stone Supply. I'm excited to have them on and work with them, Ethan and Kat. We met a, a couple months ago when we went up to their place and we did the roundtable episode and everybody really seemed to enjoy that. We got a lot of great feedback and uh, just getting to know them and, and now working together with them. I'm I'm really excited to see how this relationship grows uh their their supply store i mean so far everything that i've looked for pretty much they've had uh you know ethan is really excited to grow the supply store business so anytime you're in the market for bumpers leashes anything be sure to check them out and remember to use the code gdiy for 10 percent off your first purchase uh it, you know 10 percent adds up man you you can you can buy a lot of stuff and, and get a nice little uh, break with 10%. So be sure to use that if you go check them out. Uh, another organization that we're working with uh, temporarily is Camo Inc. They're putting on the Burt County Bird Bounty in Tecama, Nebraska. It sounds like a really fun event. It sounds like a, a unique, uh, different kind of fundraiser where you can go with a big group of buddies. You, you know, everybody has their dogs. It, it just seems like a, a fun opportunity to go out there, shoot some wild birds, uh, shoot in general, just shoot some skeet, hang out, meet some new people, and uh, raise money for a lot of good causes. So if you haven't checked them out, uh, it's camoinc.org. You can also find the link in the uh, event flyer on our website as well. We'll have that, that posted, and I'll have the link in the show notes here. So be sure to check that out if you're looking for something else to do this season to get out and have fun November 3rd through the 6th in Nebraska. Check that out. Uh, we have some other stuff in the works with some other people. I'm excited to announce hopefully here soon coming down uh, coming down the pipe. Uh, with all this change and, and new people that we're working with, you know, some, some of you may not appreciate hearing more ads. Well, you know what? There's an option for that. Uh, we do have an ad-free subscription option on Apple Podcasts. So if you're interested, if you, you really like the podcast, but it's like, man, these ads, it, you know, hey, you don't want to hear them, uh, just go sign up for that. I think it's like two bucks a month something like that so uh check that out i just wanted to throw that out there where you know it's it some people prefer doing that that's fine if uh if you're interested in other stuff we have some some really nice hats on the website you can go check out at gundogityourself.com uh on the hats or anything left on the merchandise sale we still have a few t-shirts left but they're pretty much gone um 
be sure to check out our Patreon because Patreon, there's a code to save 10% on there for uh, anything out of our shop. We also still do discounts for policemen, firefighters, uh, military, any any uh, first first responders, stuff like that. So if, if you're wanting a hat, be sure to reach out to me uh, for, for that code. And, you know, if you're not a Patreon patron or anything like that, we'll still honor the military discount and so on. Uh, so just reach out and let me know. And uh, again, that, that's that's a little more housekeeping that, than we generally like to keep. Uh, but I'm excited to bring on Standing Stone Supply, Camo Inc. Uh, for, a little, for a little bit uh, up until the event. But uh, guys, check both of them out, especially the supply store. You know, get, go get all your needs. Be sure to check out Standing StandingStoneSupply.com first. And with that being said, I'm going to wrap this up. And uh, again, next week is part two with uh, Jim Sorensen, and we will start breaking down every single species on his Upland Slam list. So if you're coming to it and uh, coming to this and you're brand new and you don't know much about the different bird species, this one's not going to give you an in-depth look at each one, but we give you kind of a thousand-foot elevation view of each one, and uh, he's got all kinds of stories and everything to work in. So I'm excited for you guys to listen to that. And uh, be sure to let me know what you think, guys. As always, you know, reach out, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever. Uh, let me know personally on the on the email account, gundogityourself at gmail.com. I'm still trying to stay as responsive uh, and, and timeliness in my responses to the emails, but guys, it's it it's getting more and more. I'm I'm doing my best. I'm I'm trying to get back to every single person I can, but it is it is getting extremely more time consuming. So uh, if you shoot me an email, don't worry, I will get back to you. It may not be today, but I, I will get back to you. So be sure to uh, shoot any suggestions like that. If you want to do something uh, just real quick and simple, always leave that rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen. Uh, we normally do a review of the week, but right now, uh, I, again, don't have it on me right now. So I will hit that up again next week. But guys, thanks for joining us. Hit that subscribe button, share it with a friend, blah, blah, blah. All that housekeeping. Support the podcast no matter what. Thanks for listening. We'll check back next week. Thanks for listening to GDIY. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again, and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. 
Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.